Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Sometimes, it just makes more sense for my AJC colleagues to guest host. When it comes to sports, I always try to hand the mic to AJC Atlanta director Dove Wilker. This week, in honor of Israel's 75th birthday, Dove sat down for a live conversation in front of a virtual audience with Major League Baseball catcher Ryan LaVarnway, who played for Team Israel in the World Baseball Classic and the Olympics. Ryan talked to Dove about the pride he felt representing Israel on the international stage and the importance of building connections between the Jewish state and the diaspora. I might not know a lot about baseball, but as someone about to visit Israel for the first time, Ryan's recollections and reflections brought tears to my eyes. Here's an instant replay. Let's get us started in the beginning, Ryan. How did you get into baseball? And does your Judaism intertwine with that, or is that a separate story? So I started playing baseball when I was five years old. And my dad always played baseball. He was always doing pickup games on the weekends, playing high pitch softball. But the story of why I got started was my kindergarten teacher told my parents that I was not good at sharing and that I should get involved in a team sport. So they signed me up about as early as I could sign up when I was five years old. And I took to it really quick. And the rest is history. You know, that's good advice for my seven-year-old, who was also not very good at sharing. So I, I appreciate that. And what about the role of Judaism in your life? Was Judaism something that was important to you from an early age, or is that sort of became more important to you as you got older? No, it really wasn't. My mom is Jewish, and she always loved Christmas. They had like a white Christmas tree in her house with blue ornaments. And my dad would describe himself as a disenchanted Catholic. So growing up, we celebrated holidays from all all religions, but there was no religion involved. We celebrated just to have a nice meal together, to have a reason to give presents and celebrate or light the candles. We went through the motions. Sometimes I joke that we celebrated Hallmark holidays. And it wasn't really until high school that I started to grow into my own as an adult and start to search for more. And in high school, I ended up going to Temple for the first time with a high school teammate's mother who had MS and couldn't drive herself. So we kind of needed each other because I needed someone to go with and she needed someone to drive her. And that was really my first experience was, was as an adult when I started searching for more meaning behind why do we celebrate these holidays and what do they mean and where's the community that I want to be a part of. And what state did you go to high school in? I grew up in California, LA County in the Valley. My wife likes to make fun of me every time I talk about home. She references that SNL skit, the Californians. She's like, <laughs> oh, you, oh, you were on the 101 and the 45. So I, I grew up in Southern California. A lot of Jewish players on my youth league teams, on my little league teams, bar mitzvah season for me, you know, when you're 13 to 15, the season of your life, I had a ton of friends that were Jewish. We had a great community here, but my family, again, we were more of the Hallmark holidays. So when you were in high school, when sort of you started getting more into your Judaism, but also, you know, as you were playing, like, did you ever experience anti-Semitism on the field when you were younger or even when you were older? When I was younger, not so much. And I think the reason that I was able to kind of dodge those bullets was because my dad was Catholic and my mom was Jewish. So as we studied the Holocaust in school, 
I felt, you know, and it, to me, I, I'm almost embarrassed looking back, but this is my truth, is I would step away and I would say, well, I'm half Catholic. So the people that were hurt and the people that were, you know, killed and anti-Semitism against, like, that wasn't me. But then I could also step like, the other side and be like, well, I wasn't the evil villain either. It wasn't my people that were causing all this pain. And that helped me avoid feeling and feeling hurt by the anti-Semitism as a kid. But what that also did was it kept me from feeling the benefits of the community. And it wasn't until later, and, and we can get into this, of when I played for Team Israel and I fully embraced being Jewish and, and publicly, that I started facing anti-Semitism for the first time and really internalizing it and feeling it personally. But then that was also the first time with that came the feeling, the sense of community and feeling like I'm your brother and you're my brother, you're my sister, and like we're all in this together. So I feel like they go hand in hand. So let's dive into that, the Team Israel stuff a little bit. Your first experience with the team came about in 2017, 2016? 16, yeah. 16. How did that all start? I mean, how do you, as a, you're a major league baseball player, you're a World Series champion, and you get a phone call from some guy who was like, hey, like, we've got this team, we want to create it, or is it your, the World Baseball Classic's going to be a big thing, and you want to find a way to be a part of it, and you're a great catcher, but you might not be picked for Team USA. Like, how does this all work? So, yeah, I got a phone call from some guy that I'd never heard of, right? Isn't it Peter Kurz? I don't know if it initially came through my agent or how he first got a hold of me, but I got a call in 2012. And I had just made it into the big leagues as a rookie the year before. I had like half a year service time, I was still trying to prove myself and establish myself as a major leaguer. And he said, Hey, we have this team Israel and we play baseball surprise. You never heard of us, which I think was everyone's reaction, but you qualify for the team because your mom's Jewish. So what do you think? And I was like, well, what's, what's the WBC? Because 10 years ago, it wasn't very popular yet. So it was still growing. He's like, well, we have to qualify to get into the tournament because we only have one field in our whole country and we're ranked 64th in the world, but we think we can do it. What do you think? The qualifiers in September. Can you be there? And I was like, well, it sounds like an amazing opportunity. Let's do it. But if I get called up again this year, I'll be in the big league. So I can't be there. So September 2012 came and went. I was in the big leagues. I wasn't able to go, but I had the seed planted in my mind of this is a possibility. This is a thing. So four years later, they just missed qualifying in 2012. They had a lead in the last inning. And my now best friend from this team, Josh Zide, ended up blowing the lead. Flash forward four years later. 2016, I get another call. Hey, we're going to try to qualify again. We just missed it last time. We think we're really going to make it this time. Can you be there? And this time my answer was, well, I'm probably going to be in the big leagues, but if for whatever reason I'm not, heck yeah, let's do it. And then the skies parted. It was the first year in six years. I wasn't in the big leagues in September and I was available and I went and played. And what I remember showing up when I first got there was Josh Zide spoke very passionately to the group about how blowing that lead four years earlier is still eating him up inside. And it was the lowest of lows for his career and everything he had done pitching in the big leagues. That was the moment he wanted to change. And his impassioned speech really spoke to the rest of us about, oh man, this is maybe more important than we thought. So I want to jump back to something that you said, which I find very profound. This random person calls you and says, hey, your mother's Jewish. You qualify to be on the team. How do you respond to that, right? You started off by saying that you sort of got more into your Judaism when you were in high school. And 
But like, how do you feel? What is that? Can I, and by the way, had, had you ever been to Israel before? Was there any sort of connection to Israel as all of this is sort of taking place? I had not ever been to Israel. When he first called me in 2012, my wife and I were engaged to be married. By the time 2016 came around, we had been married. My wife was raised Jewish. She had a bat mitzvah. She had been on birthright. We had a Jewish wedding. I was more involved in the Jewish community locally in Denver and had really embraced on a personal level that I'm a Jewish man and I want to raise a Jewish family. I want to be involved in the Jewish community in Denver. I still had yet to say that publicly because playing for the Boston Red Sox, our media training, at least 10 years ago, this was before athletes branding themselves and having their own brand was really acceptable, especially in baseball. Baseball was one of the last sports to embrace that. So the Boston Red Sox media training involved, if anything is even potentially controversial, just keep it to yourself. The Red Sox is the brand, don't tarnish it. And Boston itself as a city is a little closed-minded, I would say. It's not, I think people that know Boston could agree with this, that they're not the most forward-thinking city. So no offense to anybody from Boston who's no, listening. I love, I love the city of Boston. Trust <laughs> me. I love, I love Boston. It's one of my favorite places. I still feel at home there. I've got my Red Sox World Series ring on the table right here. But like, I know some of my black teammates didn't feel comfortable and black visiting players don't feel super comfortable there. So it's just, it's just the way Boston is a little bit. So I just kept it to myself. When I announced I was going to play for Team Israel was the first time that I really feel that it was public. And I feel maybe in a way that's the first time I dove all the way into the deep end of embracing it because you have to say it to the world. If you are privately Jewish, in a sense, you could say that maybe it's you're hiding it a little bit or it's just you're just not announcing it. So I finally announced it to the world. I finally experienced anti-Semitism for the first time in a way that I really internalized and personalized. And I was really embraced by the Jewish community. It was really wonderful in that way. So two things. One is AJC has a campaign that we created called Jewish and Proud. And it's something that we've been sort of pursuing as a result of the rise of anti-Semitism in our society. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that's so important uh, to life. In fact, one of the reasons that I, I wear my, my kippahs, one of the reasons is that I've got a hair problem in the back. But the second reason <laughs> is that I, I feel it's an important identifier because I'm very proud to be Jewish and I want people to be able to know that. But one of the things that you just said was that you, it's when you started to experience anti-Semitism really publicly. So could you share a little bit about that? what that was like or what type of experiences you might have had? Yeah, so there was a couple of experiences that were more subtle and it was more of people questioning like, oh, I didn't realize you were Jewish or like, I didn't know that about you. And I felt like they felt permission to express their questioning or they felt like they had the right to have an opinion, which ultimately, what's the difference? I'm the same exact person you've known for years. And now you think you have a differing opinion about me. And just the, the fact that, they even made a face or, or had a slight different tone when they talked to me. It made me feel like, well, why? Why did something change? Why did anything have to change? There was more obvious experiences. Baseball is a very Christian sport, at least on the professional level. I think that we have 12 Jewish major leaguers this year, and that's a record. Out of 780 players in the major leagues, 12 are Jewish. So it's very much a minority. So every Sunday, a chaplain comes in and holds baseball chapel in the dugout or in the clubhouse for both teams. And they do it in English and in Spanish. So it's a really established institution within baseball. And it's great for those players, but it's not my thing. And I kind of established that's not my thing was my, was my go-to response when I was invited because they tried to, they would try to include everybody. 
And one time I remember I was in Gwinnett, Georgia, the AAA team for the Braves. Yeah. So it's up the street from where I live right now. Yeah. And I was, I was invited to baseball chapel and so it's not my thing. And the, the chaplain really pushed back of like, why wouldn't you go? And I was like, well, I'm Jewish. So, you know, I don't need to go to baseball chapel. We have our own thing on the weekend. And he said, well, I've dealt with heathens like you before. And I don't remember what happened with the rest of the conversation, but it left me feeling really awful that he would call me that. And I honestly didn't even know what heathen meant. So I, I went and I looked it up in the dictionary on my phone. And I think technically by the definition, heathen just means non-believer. But the way he said it made me feel like he was talking down to me, like I was less than. And it, for a supposed man of God, I didn't think that was very ethical or I didn't really like the way he handled it. So small experiences like that. And then there was one other time I was in AAA. I don't remember what team I was with, but one of my teammates in the outfield was expressing some other backwards opinions about some other groups that he thought maybe I might relate to, which I didn't. And he also went on to add, also, if we're going to be friends, I'm going to have to tell you you're wrong at some point because you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And I was like, okay, guy, well, then we're just not going to be friends after this. So there has been experiences, some of them more subtle, some of them have been more obvious. In my experiences, I feel like anti-Semitism falls into two major categories. It's either ignorance or it comes from hate. And I approach them in two separate ways. I think if it stems from ignorance, I try to educate them. It shouldn't have to be my job. And anybody that is a Jewish person, it shouldn't have to be your job either. But if we don't do it, who will? And I think it goes the same way with anybody that is the receptor of any sort of ignorant hate, you know, whether it's black people or gay people, anybody that experiences that, it shouldn't have to be your job to educate people. But again, if you don't, who will? So when someone makes a joke that might be hurtful or someone comes from a place of not understanding why it might be hurtful, I try to educate them. Like, this is where the history of that joke or the history of that ignorance comes from. And then in general, people, they don't want to be ignorant and they don't want to be hurtful. So most of the time they back off. The other time is when it comes from hate. And I don't know if you can necessarily change people's hearts. I take one of my cues from Hank Greenberg, who was you know one of the more famous baseball players in history. And he was a big, strong, intimidating person he would stand up to it. And he took the approach, at least from the stories that I've heard, of you deal with a bully, you stand up to them, and you maybe intimidate them back, and then they'll back down. And I think that's one way. Or the other way is if it stems from a place of hate so much that you're in danger, then that's when you kind of try to avoid it or you reach out to authorities in some regard. Ryan, I appreciate you sharing that. Unfortunately for me, it's not surprising to hear what you shared. And I'm sure for many in our audience, they wouldn't have expected it, and yet it's also might not be a surprise. It's also one of the reasons AJC created a tool. It's an online glossary called Translate Hate for those experiences to be able to explain to people what the root of the anti-Semitism that they might be sharing comes from. I absolutely agree with you about the two types of anti-Semitism that you've experienced. I'm curious if you ever, did you ever talk to the other 11 Jewish players in the majors about their experiences, or you sort of just assume that they had similar ones? And did you ever experience it from the fans? No, in general, most of the fans have been really supportive or don't bring it up at all. So fan-wise, it's been really positive. And as far as talking to other players about it, when we're with Team Israel is when I interact with the other Jewish players the most. And we're really just enjoying the experience and really positive. So any experience I speak of is really personal and you'd have to kind of talk to them about theirs. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. So let's talk a little bit more about what it was like to represent Team Israel. 
what was it like? I mean, here you are, you, you've done very cool things in the majors. You get to be a part of this team, this unique gathering of the diaspora Jews, essentially, to represent the Jewish homeland. Here we are again, Yomhat's moot, Independence Day, talking about that. Was the team received well by the other countries in the World Baseball Classic? These are other ballplayers that you know, or were you sort of shunned aside a little bit? So the first thing is, when I first started to play for Team Israel, I can be totally honest about this. I signed up because it was a great baseball opportunity. Playing in the World Baseball Classic was, I had never played international baseball before, so it seemed like a cool thing to do. And it would add to my baseball resume. Representing a people, a culture, and a country didn't even enter my mind. It didn't know what it would mean to me. So I signed up for a baseball opportunity. We played in Brooklyn in the qualifier, and it started to hit me when I stepped on the field with Israel across my chest, and we stepped onto the line for the national anthems before the game, and we took off our hats and we put on kippah. And it was the first time that that a sports team had ever done that in my, or at least a baseball team had ever done that. And it was really interesting. And I looked into the stands, and there was Brooklyn's a home game for Israel, right? There's a bunch of Jews in Brooklyn, and there was a few yeshiva schools with kids with the talid and kippah, and it hit me that these kids have never had a team like this where they can relate to every player on the field. And everything that I know about representation and how the more things you can relate to in leaders or the more things you can relate to in role models, the more meaningful and impactful it would be for you as a, as a young person, it really hit me that I wanted to be the person for them. I wanted to be their role model. And then it hit me again when we got to Israel because after we qualified for the tournament, they brought us to Israel and they filmed the documentary about it. They did a great job. I don't get five cents if you download it on Amazon, but check it out because they did a great job. Going to Israel really, really it hit home for me. We got to Israel and we had a practice on the only field in the country. And I have this sense of meaning that's growing and my heart is expanding another size, like the Grinch on Christmas when his heart grows two sizes. And after our practice, we have a press conference with the Israeli media and they let us have it. They were initially not excited to have us represent them. They pushed back really hard. Who are you to represent us? We don't even play baseball. You guys are outsiders. Who do you think you are? And we were all like, oh my God, like we thought we were going to be at this press conference and it was going to be a love fest where they were so happy that we made it into the tournament. And that was very much not the case. So that gave us pause a little bit, but we also appreciated that they didn't just accept us because we were winners. They wanted us to prove it, like prove that you mean it and prove that you're going to represent us well. So we went to Seoul, South Korea was the first round and we started to win and we counted out before we started. I don't know if you remember the article that ESPN posted. They called us the Jamaican bobsled team of baseball, has-beens, wannabes, never were's that perfectly fulfill the role of team that has no business being there and somehow found a way to win minus they haven't won yet. That was what the article said. And that was maybe the best thing that ever happened to us because we got a very, very solid collective chip on our shoulders. And we had a lot of players that felt like maybe they had been overlooked in their careers or hadn't got the opportunity or hadn't performed to their potential. So we had a lot of players that already had a chip on their shoulder. And now as a group, we had one. So we went out there and we started to win and we beat Korea and we beat Taiwan and we beat the Netherlands. And everybody's now freaking out. We're a Cinderella story. And the other teams were great. The other teams, you know, you qualified for Israel, whatever. We move on to Tokyo. And as we advance to the second round, now the Israeli media is like, 
We're so happy you're representing us. Thank you for being respectful and giving positive energy on the worldwide stage and for playing so great. And now we have this positive thing. So the Israel media finally embraced us as we continue to send the message that we wanted to grow the game within Israel, not just win and not just say, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, we're out of here. But we all had the intention to be around for a while. And then we beat Cuba. And the Cuban media was pissed. And I think they were probably embarrassed that they lost. And that was the first time that another country's media had been like, well, you guys are all American. You guys are America's B team. And that was the first time we really got pushback. But realistically, nobody on Team Israel would have made America's B team or America's C team or America's D team or E team or F team. We were a collection of has-beens, never-wers, and wannabes that qualified for Israel. And then most of that team from 2017 signed up for the Olympics and we established Israeli citizenship and went back to Israel second time. And every time that we've been to Israel, we make the commitment to grow the game. We go and we host clinics for the youth. Most of the prize money for the team has gone to building new fields or funding international tournament travel for the youth. And participation in baseball in Israel has doubled since the first time I wore an Israeli uniform. There's so much. You're right. That was said. I'm so grateful that you shared all of that. I, I have no idea if I answered your question. <laughs> I'm not even sure what my question was anymore. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's perfect answer. By being members of the Israeli team at the Olympics, did the Israeli Olympic Committee do anything to share about the the massacre of the 72 Olympics? Was that at all a part of sort of the was there, I guess, in general, was there sort of learning, teaching, touring that that Israel did, that the institutions there did to help you all sort of have a better understanding if you'd never been there before, or sort of different challenges and things like that on the global scale? Yeah, there absolutely was. So we all had to go to Israel a second time to establish our citizenship, which I think was the right thing to do. You know, you can't just mail us a passport overnight, right? So we went to Israel again. We went to all the fields. We coached kids. We went to Independence Hall. We did all the things. What we also did was we had to go to their athletic institute to be put through a battery of testing. They wanted to make sure we were healthy and that we weren't going to die on the field, right? And I don't know if you remember the old Gatorade commercials where they had a tube hooked up to your mouth and the EKG machine, all the wires coming off and you're running on a treadmill. We did that. And we're running on this treadmill. We're dripping sweat. We're panting. Our hearts are beating. And we're all like, do you understand baseball? Like, we don't have to do this. But they put us through all the crazy testing. It was it was really awesome. And while we were at the Institute, we got to meet some of the judo athletes, some of the windsurfer athletes. And we went straight from there to the Israel Olympic experience, which is like a museum for Olympics in Israel. It's not a very big museum. They've got some gold medals. I believe, and don't quote me because I'm not sure on the facts, but I believe they had 13 medals before Tokyo and four gold, I want to say. Judo and, and windsurfing, I believe. I might be wrong, but going through that Olympic experience, it really gave us context for understanding the history of Israeli athletics and the the tragedy that happened in the 70s. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I'm curious, in Israel, what was it like for you the first time, the second time? Did your opinions change when you became an Israeli citizen? I'm not going to ask for your political analysis of the current situation there. I don't think that'd be fair. 
how has that experience changed for you and your family, by the way, right? You're married yeah. and you've got, you know, family, anybody join you in Israel? So the first time I went, my parents were nervous because if you watch the American news cycle, you would think that Israel feels like a dangerous place. And they were like, are you sure you want to go, especially right now? So I went into it a little, you know, a little nervous, not knowing what to expect. And you land on the ground. And I was like, I've never felt more safe in my life. This place is beautiful. It's amazing. The first time I went, we spent four days in Tel Aviv first. Beautiful city right on the water. We stayed in this beautiful beachfront hotel. And then we went to Jerusalem. And going to Jerusalem, and th this is going to be a pained metaphor, so please forgive me. But in the same way, the first time that I stepped into the old Yankee Stadium or Wrigley or Fenway Park, you can just tell it's different. You can just smell the significance in the air. You just know, like, I am among history. So many important things have happened here. And I get to experience this in the modern world. And it just feels like your heart beats different. The air smells different. So going to Jerusalem was that for me. And especially getting to the Western Wall, I swear to God, I felt God for the first time. And it was just this transformational experience. I think I cried. I think they caught it on video for the documentary, which is cool for me to live through and get to see again, because that was a really, really meaningful moment in my life. But going there for the first time, yeah, my wife came with me. This was before we had our daughter, years before we had our daughter. But it was really, really meaningful and transformational for me to go for the first time. When I went back the second time, I got to experience it all again. You know, you don't have that transformational experience because you've already changed as a person and you're changed forever. So it was really cool to go back again. And then they handed me my passport and I have this goatee. So I, I kind of felt like Jason Bourne, where I have two passports now, like, which one am I going to use? Except they both have the same name. It's very, very cool. So I'm going to go for some rapid fire questions. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I have one more. I have one more. I think it's a good answer. Uh, and I don't, I don't like to express my political opinions, but what I'd like to tell people is you either voted in America, if you're an American citizen, you either voted for our current president or you voted for the last president. You didn't vote for both. And either currently or four years ago, you were unhappy with the decisions that the government was making. I don't think that made you feel less proud to be an American. And I would encourage you to use the same opinion when you think of Israel. Whether you agree with what the current government is doing or not, does not have to color your opinion of whether you agree with the concept of Israel. When I think of Israel, I believe in what Israel is about and it being a safe haven for the Jewish people worldwide, whether I agree with what the current government is doing or not. And I think it's very easy to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. And that goes the same with the country that you personally identify with also. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I so appreciate you saying that. I was speaking to a, a group of high school students recently, and I, I shared with them that, you know, we're talking about the current situation. And I said, you know, Israel welcomed in Ukrainians as citizens, not as refugees, right? If you read Israel's Declaration of Independence, it refers to the survivors of the Holocaust and those who were expelled from other lands. And so the ingathering of the the safe haven for the Jewish people is, is, is so important for us to be able to continue to remember the role that Israel plays in our lives. We're, you know, we're fortunate to live in the United States today, but we see that people need Israel more and more depending on where they live. Not everybody's as fortunate. And, and there are many people who have moved, you know, to Israel because of the anti-Semitism that they themselves might have experienced here. So I think it's a really powerful statement for you to make. It's something that I, I hope I, I'm guessing that if you shared it here, you share it with all of your audiences. But if not, I, 
I hope that that's something you continue to share with your audiences. All right. Well, there's no easy transition to my rapid fire, so I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna do it. To rip off the bandaid. There you go. Uh, favorite Israeli snack? Shawarma. Oh, snack. That you have a very different appetite than I do, my friend. I have a very big appetite. Favorite city in Israel? Jerusalem. Favorite baseball memory? Two answers: World Series win or my debut with Cincinnati. Okay. Most challenging part of being a catcher? The, phys- <laughs> the hitting in the ninth inning. <laughs> You know, you talk about the small numbers, the mighty numbers of Jews in in Major League Baseball today. Is there an association between the Jewish ballplayers in the Major Leagues and other professional sports? Is there any reason for, maybe it's based on a city that you live in, or it's sort of an overall, I know like there's the Jewish Coaches Association, something like that. Is there anything like the Jewish Professional Ballplayers Association that gets you together, perhaps to be able to encourage others like you to play for the Israeli teams and other sports that they're uh, professionals in? Uh, not that I've experienced yet, but that might be a cool idea to start. I'd be up for it if you want to talk off of this broadcast. I can't. Uh, I, I'll, it's my new side project at work. Uh, Ted, thank you for the approval. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess my final question for you, Ryan, is we're here today, Yom Mood, Israel's 75th birthday. What type of closing message do you have about the importance of Israel? You already talked about the safe haven for the Jewish people, but sort of the future of American Jewry. Any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share? My biggest thing is participate and be proud. And you need to be public because the only way that we can get the benefit of the community and strengthen numbers is if we support each other and we're aware of who each other are. I've received so much benefit in my life from embracing the community and stepping out into the public. And it's really changed my life and it's changed how I view myself as a man. And it's changed the direction that I wanna raise my family. And it's been such a positive change and I've had such a positive embrace from the community and I want others to experience that. And I never would have experienced it if I didn't go out of my way to participate in Team Israel. So I encourage anybody watching, go out, get involved, anything in your community, a team you can get involved in. It's been so positive for me and I hope it can be so positive for you as well. Well, Ryan, on behalf of American Jewish Committee, thank you very much for joining us for this wonderful conversation. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to my conversation with Emmy award-winning actress Juliana Margulies about her efforts to boost Holocaust education in public schools. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 